0: I remember about 10 years ago I wrote to the justice ministers in Belfast, Dublin and London saying, look, the health services here have got a right of action against Big Tobacco. They should grab it. Nobody wanted to know because there's a fear factor. There's a fear factor. These corporations, the the social media companies like Big Tobacco, have massive power, massive financial clout. They're much more powerful than government. I mean, and that's, that's a fact.
1: Hello again, you're very welcome to the Insights Podcast with Sean O'Rourke. With me is a man who's been rightly described as a lawyer to the stars and indeed a friend to many of them. Libel specialist Paul Tweed services have been used by Sylvester Stallone, Tiger Woods, Johnny Depp, Reese Witherspoon, Jennifer Lopez, Sarah Ferguson, Britney Spears and many more. Paul Tweed, uh, you're very welcome. Wh- Who have I left out?
0: My wife always tells me I can name drop for Ireland, Sean, so I'd better not start here. She normally has a baseball bat behind me to stop me. uh, (laughs) Okay, uh, well,
1: (laughs) I suppose there's Tom Cruise, Liam Neeson, (laughs) Uri Geller, Prince Andrew, Harrison Ford, uh, Barney Eastwood... There's a few more like uh, Patrick Keelty, Louis Walsh, Chris Deburg, and Neil Jordan. And then you've had political clients from various quarters, Jerry Adams, Arlene Foster, Paddy McKillen, uh, business people like him, Sean Dunn, Michael O'Leary of Reiner. Would it be true to say that uh, a letter from you to a media outlet is designed and often does strike terror into the heart of a reporter or an editor?
0: No, it's not intended to do that. It's intended to set the record straight. That's the primary objective in any letter I send. I mean, I listen with amusement to the debate that's going on at the moment over uh, the slap uh, actions that people are getting very concerned about. That's uh, I have to make sure. Strategic. You you say it. (laughs) Um,
1: Yeah, I I, I made a note of it because I I did want to ask
0: you about it. Um, Strategic lawsuits against public participation. And uh, that is basically, it is legislation that has been debated in Dublin, London and indeed uh, uh, across Europe at the moment, primarily to deal with Russian oligarchs who have been accused of using intimidatory tactics via lawyers to basically silence uh, public debate. Now, from my point of view, I'm sort of in a very unusual position because I act for Many journalists, in fact, the largest group of clients I act for are made up of journalists. How many would you include in that? Many, many over the years. I mean, again, I can probably name drop journalists for Ireland as well if you you want to go down that route. But the second biggest group are politicians. The third largest group are lawyers, but we'll maybe not go there. We'll leave them off, off the pitch for the moment. So whenever I write, if you have to, if you like, write to intimidate somebody... I would accept that the lawyer isn't wrong. If that's if the pure purpose of a my letter is to try to scare somebody into doing something, I would be very, very disappointed in myself never mind the client asking me to do that.
1: You specialise obviously in defamation law here in Ireland and internationally. It's a rapidly changing area and we'll obviously want to talk about that moving away from the traditional print media um, as the scene or the main scene of the action into cyberspace. But in your case, it all began, your road to fame or maybe notoriety, who knows, began with the so-called Cream Bun case involving two prominent Belfast barristers.
0: Bob McCartney. He was a very well-known QC in his day before he became a politician. He and Desmond Bowl, another QC, Desmond Bowl would be on the criminal side, Bob McCartney on the civil side. They were accused of fighting over the last chocolate eclair in a Hollywood cake shop. That's Hollywood County Down, by the way, as opposed to Hollywood, California. We'll come back to that in a moment. So anyway, I take no credit for this case whatsoever. It was all down due to Bob McCartney's backbone guts. This uh, was a story in the Sunday world. Sunday world and basically it was a fabricated story. Uh, a lawyer with a grudge, solicitor with a grudge against uh, Bob McCartney he put the story in for a laugh. And people thought there were people were ridiculing the, the thought of McCartney taking legal proceedings. But what they've got to remember is these guys at the top of their game, they've got to have credibility and respect. And you know, I know Bob was saying to me one day, he drove into the Bar library car park in Belfast, and the security guy said, Quick, hide your buns, here comes Mr. McCartney. And you know, big laugh. That there, you know, is quite important because it does undermine, and it's a it's a situation that he
1: being held up to ridicule. I think exactly, is one of the tests a, for libel. But it's, 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 seriously, Paul, yeah. I mean, fifty thousand pounds sterling yeah. in nineteen eighty what? Nineteen eighty six. Yeah, I mean, you certainly bought more than one house uh, oh. with that money in Belfast or even in Bangor, where you grew up yourself. Yeah. I mean, it just boggles the mind. I mean, is it any wonder? Currently, you have to be able to show serious harm inflicted. Well, I would in, just say in the draft yes, I think it's
0: correct. And I, 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 have no, I don't oppose a serious harm threshold. But in Bob McCartney's case, these were seven working class people who formed a jury in Belfast. They heard the evidence, they got an understanding of how it impacted on McCartney, and they formed a view. And, and they, Mr. Ball and, and yeah, and the fifty thousand pounds was a lot of money for anyone. Never mind, you know a jury like ourselves working hard. I still had my overdraft. I was still wrestling against. So you know, it wasn't people make assumptions, and they say you know, that you know, oh fifty thousand per lot or a hundred thousand pounds per lot, but invariably these cases are assessed by people who yeah. are living on you know they. They're, they're,
1: Bob McCartney then and your your contact with him and your success uh, on his behalf though he probably didn't need you other than for administrative purposes totally um, that led you on then to work with Barney Eastwood uh, the sports promoter and then there was a monster case between yourself and Barry McGuigan
0: correct 450 grand there yep with quite a bit of litigation leading up to that and uh, it was a big one and in fairness uh, to uh, BJ Eastwood I mean he would he and McCartney were major influence in my life and my professional career in those days uh, you know back in the 1980s you'll remember that you know very few of the stars would come to Belfast to perform you know it was virtually it was a total void and Eastwood funded himself uh, boxing bouts in the King's Hall. And as it happens in all these cases, whenever anyone gets success, they forget who contributed to that success. And, uh, you know, in, in this scenario arose. We'd he'd been sparring with Barry McGuigan since uh, McGuigan lost his title in Las Vegas. We'll maybe not go into all that there, but, you know, that, that's all fairly well-known history. And so whenever Barney spoke to me about this, uh, I mean, there was a view... That this was one that he could not win because no jury would find against Barry McGuigan, who was one of the most popular personalities of his day. And Barney Eastwood, you know, wealthy, multi-millionaire, bookmaker and promoter, people thought you have no chance. Eastwood, again, would be a very determined individual. This hurt him. Very bad for a number of reasons, not least that you know he'd regarded Barry, he'd treated Barry as a member of his own family and different things. So we fought the case and it fought for five and a half weeks. Again, seven members of the public, no axe to grind, heard it, most importantly, heard all the evidence. And one of the lessons that came out of that case, and i I'd sort of, my defamation practice was building up just in the sidelines, primarily restricted to Ireland yeah. in those days. But the the big lesson that I learned from that is if you're going to write a book, make sure that that book contains facts that you can stand over. Because we spent the, the big game changer, in my opinion, in that case, in the McGregor case, was not just the credibility of the two men in the witness box and the respective witnesses, but we were able to go through the book, Barry's autobiography, page by page, after he'd given evidence, as he gave evidence in the witness box. So those are all lessons I've learned.
1: Yeah, but it, there's a, 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 at the kernel, or one of the key points, for instance, in the legislation being considered now here in, in the Dáil uh, by a scrutiny committee is that we remove juries from libel cases. Yeah.
0: Is there any wonder? Well, no, but again, I, I disagree. I mean, put it this way, I'm not a supportive jurist. I really don't mind. I don't care whether it's a jury or a judge alone. I mean, the case we did for Arlene Foster, for instance, over a tweet quite recently, that was heard by a judge alone. A judge alone heard uh, And that, that
1: was a very serious allegation.
0: It was a serious allegation. It said, you know, falsely alleged that she was having an affair with her, with her driver. And, but, you know, that was a judge alone. 125000 You know, if that was a jury... I guarantee people will be saying, Oh, we've got to get rid of the juries. Who's going to award 125000 That was a judge with no axe to, 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 to grind, heard the evidence, assessed it all. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm of an age, Sean, that, you know, there were juries for personal injury cases when I first started out. And I was acting on the defence side then.
1: Yeah, uh, so, so you since we, we're talking about uh, politicians now, you represent Arlene Foster, but you don't represent just one side, you take all comers, including Jerry Adams. What was his case about?
0: Well, you we have a number of cases for Jerry Adams. Again, you know, I act for the politicians from, well it's DUP, Sinn Féin, Fianna Fáil, Féla gale I've acted for two former uh, Taoiseachs I've done. Everyone, I, I am not political and no lawyer should ever be political in my opinion because you cannot do your job. If, if but you're, if, you're, the, if, if that I'm, was the
1: case, should we, we'd have vacant <laughs> seats at the High Court <laughs> all over <laughs> the place, <at> right <laughs> and centre, certainly in this jurisdiction. <laughs> I don't <laughs> know about Northern Ireland or no, the UK. No,
0: no, no. no, it's just, like I say, all my clients, I don't go into their political beliefs. I, I decide, have they got a case? Are they telling the truth? And is it a case I can win? And is it a case I should win? And I use that judgment in every single case I take on.
1: Moving on then to your international portfolio. um, Did it begin with Tiger Woods? I
0: mean, he was here for the um, Ryder Cup. The case that really set it off for me, I mean, after Eastwood, we started to get, one of the witnesses in the Eastwood case was a guy called Jimmy Binns. He was a Philadelphia-based attorney who acted for quite a lot of, a number of stars, Kevin Costner, people like that. And he was labelled by one of the Irish papers and got the case settled. But I, that gave me, the, I realised that, you know, we can bring people into Ireland because nobody wanted to employ me abroad. Didn't mean that I couldn't bring international stars into Belfast and Dublin. And so it, we started to develop with Liam Neeson in the late 90s and then had various, mainly Irish-based Hollywood personalities in the early 2000s. But the big... Eye-opener for me came in 2006, where we were instructed on behalf of Britney Spears. And at that stage, you know, she was married to Kevin Federline. National Enquirer had just decided, I think it was a decision they regretted, to open a European edition, which is freely available in Ireland here. And they falsely alleged that at that stage her marriage had broken up in various other allegations. And we got an apology from him. We got the case settled very, very quickly. It got an apology from them for, was it the first time in their long history? First time in 70 years, their 70-year history, according to their, their editor at the time. He, he told me that was the first time they'd apologised. So I thought to myself, right, how do we get profiled? Because it didn't really, wouldn't really mean too much to Brittany and her advisers if the apology was published even in the European edition or in Ireland. Papers. This was spread all over the States and whatever in the other editions of the paper. So I just got it pumped out, out onto the internet, exactly the same way where it had come up if you like in the first place and I sat watching and in about seven seconds it went from Ireland right across Europe the Far East, Australia and into LA where I wanted it to land. I couldn't believe it I watched it just with my mouth open I couldn't believe it and I just realised that's the future. So after that we got quite a few with JLo and quite a few of the others followed through and the UA- I get a lot of work via uh, uh, US attorneys in Los Angeles who act in the media world. So we started to get an awful lot of cases in. And that basically started a trend. Now, the Hollywood actors are the cases that, you know, whenever I'm interviewed, people want to find out about. But they are really, they are the cases that give you the profile, if you like. But that, in turn, led me on to realise that at that stage, social media was starting to take off. And you could see the world was changing dramatically. Mm-hmm. And I thought, right, cottage industry here is about to be presented to me. I hadn't even asked for it. And it all of a sudden, that was the way we, di- we yeah, diverted almost away from the mainstream media.
1: But what looked like it was going to derail that was uh, an act brought forward by Barack Obama. I think it was it in two thousand and ten, correct? Which meant that an American citizen couldn't sue another one outside of the another American citizen outside of the United States.
0: That's correct. Now I'm sort of claiming uh, Converse credit for that because apparently I was one of the main reasons that it was brought in was Dr. Rachel Ehrenfeld who'd taken real umbrage at the High Court in London for a libel award against her and she had lobbied hard. Uh, Congress then decided to speed This This was so important. This, by the way, was in the midst of the worst economic recession the world had seen Mm. since 1929, but this got priority. It was pushed through without debate even. I wasn't allowed. I offered to come and give evidence to a congressional committee that was hearing it, but no, no, they didn't want me to do that for some reason. I said, well, could you just name, give me one example of libel tourism, just one example, to let me defend the concept they couldn't. But we, you, you
1: were the tour promoter in chief of but this, we, were you not?
0: But yes, but we were not. It was not library tourism. I was taking legal action where a European, whether it be Irish, UK... French or whatever, if they libeled and if there was a basis for bringing the claim, I was doing it. It was not libeled tourism. And I still make that sense. I mean, we did a case for Justin Timberlake in Dublin about 10 years or so ago. And I was immediately, people attacked me left, right and centre. Why is Justin Timberlake bringing a case in the High Court in Dublin? Why not? The magazine we were suing, Heat Magazine, was on the shelves and it was in Tesco here. If you went to the checkout in Tesco, the magazine cover was there that we were suing over. So what, why do people think... At the courts in Ireland yeah, but are again, than the courts on that in point, London or elsewhere.
1: Yeah, on that point though, Paul, I mean, I think it was the 2013 UK Defamation Act. Um, it required that a defendant must be domiciled in the UK or be uh, from an EU state, though that probably went uh, mm-hmm. the way of Brexit or at least a lot of the connections with Europe. Um, and something similar, I think, is proposed now in the legislation here in this jurisdiction. yeah. yeah.
0: And like I say, if that's happened, so be it. I mean, that's the thing. We work around the law. I mean, I was on the uh, Justice Committee panel that considered that 2013 Act in London. Uh, I was in a minority of one, as usual. Uh, But, you know, again, I was pleading with them then, forget about, look at the online problem. Look at social media. I mean, these debates that we're talking about now are absolutely academic in so many ways. What we've got to do is concentrate on getting the social media and online giants on the same level playing field as the mainstream media. There should be moves to repeal Ecom directive, uh, the section in that that they rely on to say that that gives them protection yeah, or they, section it's, 230 it's, in, the, in the United States. It, it
1: describes them as platforms and not publishers. Correct. And that's their great loophole or their get out clause. That's what they,
0: they hope. I don't accept that but that is what they use to defend and scare off anyone bringing a case against him. Now, why are we not looking at that?
1: Well, you you took a case, I think, in the last couple of years uh, on behalf of Miriam O'Callaghan, the the broadcaster, against Facebook because they had carried material falsely suggesting that she, I think, had given up her broadcasting career to go promoting some face product or something like that. Now, how were you able to deal with a giant
0: in that particular instance? We got it resolved in the end. uh, But it took, you know, it made Miriam show great courage in taking that case on we drove the case forward she would like yourself Sean would have a good idea how the media works and how these things you know should be uh, dealt with so we eventually got it resolved you know if you somebody a person bank official anyone somebody who does not experience in this area I mean it's a very intimidating experience And these uh, platforms have got unlimited financial firepower.
1: Hasn't there been, um, in a broader sense,
0: a ruling by is
1: it the European Court of Justice that um, if a person with a grievance can prove that something said about them or published about them or. Platformed about them is false, then it has to be taken down within a certain period.
0: That's what they're proposing to put into, into effect, but maybe we could have another discussion in six months' time to find out what effect that is have, having. I mean, under the English system, under the 2013 Act, I mean, uh, 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 Section 5 of that Act, again, has a provision that once the platform is put on notice, they must identify the user, the anonymous user, if they fail to do that, take it down. In reality, none of these things come into effect what we have had to do against the platforms we have to go to the court to get a court order in miriam's case for instance yeah and we got the court order. and to be fair to the platforms i I actually it sticks in my throat to say to be fair but to be fair to them what they say is look we will not oppose your application to the court if you get it we will comply and they always do they comply with whatever court order is put out there but the big problem is if you want to get what apply for what's known as a norwich Pharmacal order you have to pay for both sets of costs. doesn't matter what the outcome is. You have to pay for both sets of costs. Which could you know, run to what? €20,000, €30,000. You know, it just depends on... on right. The At the end of the day, it's back to your, the point that you just raised earlier, Sean. Publisher or platform? Anyone can set up a platform and say, look, I'm not responsible for this. I'm not responsible for somebody calling you an axe murderer. Sure, I'm just a platform. Yet, if that platform wasn't there that allegation against you would have no more. Um, as you say, it no could
1: more. be around the world in seven seconds. And again coming back to, to the legislation being examined here uh, Twitter have made a submission to that committee in, in the Dáil suggesting that the new defamation laws would have to use that um, phrase a chilling effect on a free speech and they do not agree with the idea that a person who believes a defamatory statement about them uh, was published uh, can take a, a procedure that you know they have to submit a notice uh, to the platform and they have to get a response within 10 days that puts a an onus I think on the platform to contact the person who yes, wrote sir, the yeah. tweet and so forth. It it could be hellishly complicated and bearing in mind that there are
0: billions of tweets probably every minute. Yeah. I mean how can how can they be expected to control all that? Well they can get algorithms for everything else that suits them, you know, for suits their, their if you like their agenda, uh, whether it's um, their marketing agenda or, or financial agenda. They can get an, they'll be able to get an algorithm in place. But, you know, again, it's back to the point that I'm making. I mean, you know, we're moving into an era now of artificial intelligence. I actually thought we were in it for a number of years, but see trying to get a human being to talk to and any of these platforms is a major challenge in itself. But they, they have got the ability, if they put their mind to it, they can deal with this in a way that you know, may not be apparent till a man on the street, they can do it. So
1: could they become, uh, do you believe they could and should be made as amenable to the law as, I don't know, the Irish Independent or the Irish Examiner?
0: Of course, why not? Of course they should. And if they're too big, if they're taking, if they're too big an empire, then they shrink their empire to a, a level that they can control and act in accordance with the law that applies to the mainstream media. Why should RTE be treated differently from Google? Why? i, I I've, in all my years of experience, nobody's been able to explain that to and me. And how practical, though, is
1: the idea? You say, oh, they can get algorithms to do anything. Mm-hmm. But do you seriously think that that is something that could and should be done by, say, the Irish government? I mean, bearing in mind the amount of jobs, the amount of corporation tax revenue that's coming in, that they should, you know, sort of put the boot into these social media companies who are headquartered in this country.
0: Well, I think you've raised a very interesting, very pertinent point there, Sean. And that perhaps answers a question. Your question actually answered it. And that's what I am concerned about. You know, is there a motivation uh, to do that? I mean, you may recall in the, the days whenever the tobacco industry were running rampant and they were claiming that, you know, first of all, cigarettes weren't harmful to your health. Nobody wanted to touch them. Even today, I mean, I I remember about 10 years ago I wrote to the justice ministers in Belfast, Dublin and London saying, look, the health services here have got a right of action against big tobacco. They should grab it. Nobody wanted to know because there's a fear factor. There is a fear factor. These corporations, the, the social media companies like big tobacco have massive power, massive financial clout. They're much more powerful than government. I mean and that's that's a fact and, and they're so, mobile as well of course totally mobile and you know and at the end of the day we've got to make a decision I mean we're not it's not a question of scaring them off they do a lot of good as well I mean a social media company particularly in places like Africa or wherever mm. they do a lot of good this is not it's not just a boogeyman situation so it is just making them accountable the same as everyone else would Why you do, be
1: would you be in favor for instance then of that provision even though Twitter describes it as being ha- having this chilling effect on free speech that if you submit a notice to the platform they have 10 days to respond um, by getting hold uh, or tracking down the the person who wrote the uh, offending uh, article or tweet and then if no response, if they don't get a response within five days it's automatically taken down or disabled.
0: At the very least, but what I would also expect is that they don't allow a user to take advantage of their platform or whatever they want to call it without knowing who it is in the first place. And I don't care what that means, you know, seeing a driving licence or some form of ID or whatever. That is the answer to all this.
1: That people, in other words, be required to identify themselves when they're setting up the account. But I mean, has that like, you know, has that horse not bolted long ago? Because there are literally millions, billions perhaps of accounts. Yes. but It's a bit like mobile phones. Arguably, you should be able to or you should be required to identify who you are along the means suggested ID, passport, whatever, before you're allowed to buy one.
0: I agree, but the point is this highlights the fact of accountability and responsibility. They've created this situation, and now they want to walk away from it. And now they're using expressions that the mainstream media used a decade ago, you know, this chilling effect. I mean, you know, I'm the one who feels chilled at the moment. The chilling effect is on me because I feel fairly powerless whenever clients come to me. People have been threatening suicide, and many of my clients have gone on record and said that, that they were suicidal because of the allegations that have been made against them. What about them? Who's more important? The Government Treasury? Or the individual whose whose life is actually again part of
1: the provision here is a requirement on lawyers like yourself I suppose to draw the attention of complainants to uh, mediation uh, whether it's through the press council or whatever I mean wouldn't that be and isn't that um, a more satisfactory way of setting the record straight and putting wrong
0: to right if, if Facebook Google and Twitter signed up to the press council regulations that would be make my day that's what should be done. I'm a great fan of the Press Ombudsman. Uh, you know, over the years, uh, you know, they, they've shown courage to take on the media. That would be absolutely great. But this is another example of these, the platforms regard themselves as completely different. You know, we can publish with impunity, but you can't come near us. And you see, if you try to come near us or pretend to come near us, then we'll move away. In Canada, at the moment, you've seen Facebook have withdrawn their news to try and put pressure on the Canadian government. The same thing they did in Australia. The Australian government showed because the Because they're being
1: required to make a contribution to the to providers th- yeah, of the news.
0: Yeah, exactly, to, to avoid the, the, those providers being put out of business. Now, Australia had the backbone, took them on, and they managed to get them to play ball, albeit with the backing of Rupert Murdoch. But in Ireland, we need a bit of backbone here. The government needs a of backbone. One,
1: is it one though that we could go alone, or should go along and surely this requires the EU 27 to move collectively on?
0: I think it should but the EU have delegated data protection to Ireland you know there's no reason why they can't delegate to Ireland they, you know, lay, lay, lay the responsibility or the job I should say of, of, of dealing with the media. But don't forget the platforms have got their European Middle Eastern and African headquarters in Dublin. Most of them. Now I might be being stupid here but if if you've got your you know your European, Middle Eastern and African headquarters in Dublin, that suggests to me that you're accepting some degree of responsibility of the stuff that you're publishing into those jurisdictions. No, even that doesn't fall into place. So it's all totally one-sided. Goalposts removed all the time, shifted all the time, and then we as lawyers, I mean, and I can swap my hat while I'm acting for a newspaper or a broadcaster, or a wheeler magnet for an individual, we're we under attack the whole time. Everything is our fault, and we have been blocked at what we do. The SLAP uh, legislation we discussed earlier, you know, is a prime example. The SLAP, the legislation they're debating, and have spent, like, literally months debating it in, in the UK and Ireland, about an oligarch is not going to be worried about the cost of a, a penalty cost order against them. If, he, if, he, if he's thrown out. It's, but the ordinary man on the street, as in California, the, the California experience over the last 30 years, has found he's terrified to go near the law. So you're hitting him again.
1: Yeah, and as, as against that, I mean, to just look at some particular cases. I think you had one, I don't mean you necessarily, where a specialist in re- rescuing a, a cave yeah, uh, Unsworth, practitioner yes, was described as a pedo, I think, by
0: yeah. uh, Elon Musk. Yeah. Took action against him. Didn't succeed. Yeah. I mean, is there a worse thing that could be said about somebody? Totally, and that was, again, a jury, albeit in the United States, uh, that found in Elon Musk's favour. Uh, they said it was done in a jovial manner. Now, again, that... I still you've got to look at the law it's not you know the, the, the moral outcome you're looking for here it is the legal outcome and the jury did they they assessed it all and they came to that conclusion but it is it, it, one of the difficulties I mean that expression you've just given is one of the most common ones that you know has been thrown out there at the moment I mean we get a lot of uh, people consulting us either you know as a result of somebody calling them that or they maybe doing it in a sort of a flippant manner mm-hmm. or whatever and it is some, but you know Social media, it is no different having an allegation like that published on Facebook or on YouTube than it is on RTE or Lucindo. There's no difference. Yeah, and in the
1: case, say, that you referred to earlier about Arlene Foster, that was an action taken not against the platform but against the person who did the tweet. Correct. And similarly, there was um, a case taken by Lord McAlpine uh, across the water against Sally Berko, wife of the Speaker. She just put up this question, why is he trending? And this was against the backdrop of a BBC programme not naming somebody who I think they were accusing of, of sexual misconduct. But
0: anyway, people put two and two together yeah. and he successfully sued there. Correct. And a number of people, a number of users of Twitter, you know, that they either retweeted or covered it. I mean, there's a difference between... There's, oh, sorry, in, in law, it's a question whether the individual is identified as opposed to named. Yes. And the, really, there's not much of a difference. And if you're identified by... Association or by comparison or whatever, that's the same thing as being named.
1: Yes, Uh, is that because there could be, I suppose, a feeding frenzy on one of those platforms arising out of some programme that doesn't identify somebody,
0: which happened, I think, in this case that we're talking about uh, with Lord McAlpine? But word gets out. The word gets out, and then it it can be compounded whenever a mainstream broadcaster like the BBC, you know, give credibility to it, as happened in that particular case. And that's, you know, that's something that we've all got to be, you know, conscious of. I mean, people's lives are can be destroyed by this type of situation. And again, you know, in the era we're living at the moment, it just takes an allegation, a Me Too type allegation or anything, you know, suggesting that type of impropriety where the no smoke without fire analogy goes right through the roof. And so that's why the, the platform's should be even more accountable than, and it's more necessary that they're accountable nowadays than perhaps it would have been 20 years ago. Uh,
1: to take another case, I'm not sure if you were involved in the Johnny Depp case, he of Pirates fame against the Sun, which uh, effectively accused him of being a wife-beater. And all that case dragged on for weeks. All manner of allegations and, and evidence of the most sordid kind came, came out. He lost in the end. Now, arguably that caused him more damage because he took the action. Yeah. Separately, he
0: succeeded against the Washington Post. Got Was it $15 million? Yep, 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 indeed. Explain that. Well, I wasn't involved. I was conflicted out because I'd acted for both of them when they were married back in 2015. So I wasn't involved in either of the cases on, in London or, or in, in the States. But um, you had a judge alone hearing the case in London. The judge went through the evidence at that point and gave a very, very reasoned and detailed judgment. Everyone thought as a result of him basically finding against Johnny Depp that Depp's career was over but Depp in the meanwhile had a parallel case running, it wasn't a retaliatory case I mean this case had been started at the same time so everyone knew there was going to be a round two coming up and sure enough he got the decision the complete opposite of what happened but social media of course were in many ways a jury in that case even though there was an actual jury in the courtroom and it undermines the scenario that we've had in days gone by where a judge says look You've got to ignore what you read in the newspapers. For a judge, nowadays to say you've got to ignore what's on social media. To a jury, a live jury, pretty pointless. You know, I mean, we would all be very foolish to think that... that And there's probably a running commentary on
1: the case with every day of of the evidence, uh, which
0: is a difficult temptation, I
1: suspect, for jurors to, to, to resist. But it brings us as well, Paul, to the question of, you know, whether people are wise in taking actions because the article complained of may have been seen by a relatively small number of people. And then the case opens and goes on and all sorts of stuff comes out that's broadcast, uh, be it on, on traditional media or on social media, to literally hundreds of thousands of people who didn't know the first thing about it.
0: Well, I'd say, obviously, Arlene Foster faced that uh, problem with the, the potential Barbara Streisand effect. It's, it's one, a client's got to make that decision, you know, and it is a big one, and it's one we have to discuss with the client every week. Mm. Uh, There's always at least one case like that Uh, and again particularly in the Twitter sphere you know you can have somebody with maybe only 30 followers but to make a very serious allegation and there's a risk of being retweeted or in the era of AI being brought in you know as part of the, uh, the, the, the overall summary of a client so that decision has to be taken by the client and it is a big big decision in all of these cases you just cannot be certain.
1: As well as working in the area of defamation, you also work in reputation protection now. I think that would have been the heading under which you perhaps uh, thought it was uh, useful to advise Prince Andrew not to do that now notorious interview with Emily Maitlis on the BBC. Was there not a point that he actually had in facing it to set the record straight?
0: The fact that, you know, if he continued with silence, well, as you say yourself, no smoke without fire. Well, put it this way, I would have advised any client the same, I would have given the same advice that I gave to Prince Andrew. You do not go into an interview like that without being prepared. If you are, if, if, if I have a plaintiff who's decided to issue legal proceedings, whether it's London, Dublin or wherever, The client will have the benefit of putting his case in writing beforehand in what's known as a court pleadings. You set the case out, you discuss it, and you make sure the relevant points and the accurate points are put in there. Only those. At that stage, you're not the, the issue of empathy and how you, if you like, deliver your presentation. I mean, You are an expert in your field. You would know how to deliver your points before the media and before the general public. But somebody like Prince Andrew would not have had any experience of that at all. He had no people, you know, advising him how to prepare. It's not that he would or should have given anything that was misleading, but he would have somebody would have given an understanding of how an answer was taken by people listening. And that was a big problem there. And as I say, I say that to all clients, you know, you do not jump into that scenario, particularly with an experienced interview like Emily Maitlis. I mean, it was just absolute madness to anyone. And not just, as I say, I would emphasise, I would have given the same advice to any client. As to your, the point that you're making, as to whether he gets a point out there, the Royals have always had the, the old adage, uh, you know, uh, the old Mr Dunn adage, you know, never complain, never explain. You've only got to decide, you stick to that. You can't do it in half measures. And the big problem was, you know, as I say, Prince Andrew was not my client. I acted for a family. I've advised mm. the family generally. He had his own palace appointed lawyers or whatever. The difficulty was that whenever the pressure started to come on, they decided to put out reactive statements. A reactive statement is never a strong, a good statement. Never really is. You've got to grab the initiative yourself. You've got to get the points that you want to be made out there, the facts and grass them together and put them out in your terms, not in response to what somebody else has put out there, because it never looks good. It always looks as if you're cherry picking or you're trying to put a slant on it. But if
1: you don't respond to serious questions that are raised, again, no smoke without fire.
0: In his case, there was litigation pending or potential litigation pending uh you know you make your mind up are you going down the court route and yes you do you know you take the pressure or if you're going to put a statement out there you do it at the outset on your terms and you grasp it more important if you're going to negotiate a settlement and again i was involved in any of that you know you do it we we would i would settle 95 percent of my cases perhaps more that's probably even maybe higher 98 percent of cases are settled and we discuss we negotiate and you try to make sure, this is always, I've never had a scenario in 40 years where I can't get a wording that could be read either out before the court or to the media that doesn't satisfy the requirements of both sides. Sometimes it has to be more slanted depending on the facts than, other, than towards one side or the other, but there's no reason. That again is something that could and perhaps should have been considered, I don't know. I was not involved in any of those discussions, and to be fair to those advising him, there may have been facts and reasons that I am still unaware of, even at this stage.
1: Do you consider yourself to be a friend of many
0: of your clients? It, it depends i'm a service provider i'm nothing more than that you know most of the clients will not remember my name after you know the event is over and um, i do there's some clients who are exceptions to that rule and you know uh, we've got there's certainly some very well known ones have been very good you know to me and my family or whatever okay. I, but i'm i a, i'm a service provider and mm-hmm. i must never forget that you know you can't i remember once um it was actually a sunday times journalist uh, was doing a, a piece with me and she said you know she was talking about a friend of hers and journalist. Ernest was very upset he was a very famous person uh, whenever she rang him up some months after they did an interview they did a piece on him and he was very uh, unfriendly to her didn't want to know and she was aghast because she thought he was a friend because like, I'm the same I'm, I'm the same. that's all I am for the moment and I come in and you know whether well, you call me a or har- whatever. a Harry gun. I was about to use the, the word, phrase the, you yeah. know, the and at the end of the day that's what I do You know, I, I do it but I do it on the basis of the merits of a case and I go in to win I like to hunt and I think Have you lost many cases? I can't remember if I have. Oh, you're like Jack Nicklaus. He
1: could never remember a bad putt. Yeah, yeah. Probably a like that as well. Um, try to find yeah, that. I suppose as part of the psychology as well. Again, with the defamation bill that's going through here, there is, I suppose, some comfort being provided for broadcasters. A broadcaster will not be liable for statements made during live broadcast by a person over whom they have no control, provided reasonable precautions were taken in advance to avoid it happening.
0: What would you think of that? I think I have no problem with that at all. Uh, But I think you should add the caveat that, you know, it it would be expected that they would at least distance themselves or qualify their their stance in any, you know, overtly defamatory statement that was made. But I think, you know, a broadcaster trying to deal with a live broadcast impossible situation and there should be absolute protection. I mean, I am absolutely a firm believer that investigative journalism should be protected at all costs. Um, What what I'm not in favour of is, you know, Information that's put out there, facts and allegations are put out there that have got no basis in truth whatsoever. And I think that there has to be accountability for that.
1: So, where do you strike the balance between uh, a requirement for the person publishing to be able to prove something is true uh, as against the person, the complainant uh, or the plaintiff uh, having to show that damage, serious harm resulted from whatever was said or written?
0: Depends whether I'm acting for a publisher. Or whether I'm acting for a plaintiff, and I'll give you a different answer in each occasion. Well, OK, if you're acting for a plaintiff. For a plaintiff, I think, I suppose, it's much more comfortable with the way things stand. It's easier for a plaintiff at the moment. But, you know, in the United States, I mean, I've been involved in many, many cases over the years. In the US, albeit I don't practice there, but, you know, I've been over sitting in cases. And, you know, at the end of the day, it all comes down to one thing, getting the truth out there getting the facts out there. Now, if the onus is on the publisher to prove the truth or the onus is on the plaintiff to prove the truth, it should be capable of being proven.
1: Now, you were saying and you were assisting uh, earlier in this conversation, Paul, that um, algorithms should be found and can be found to enable the social media companies, the, the, the big players, to provide the kind of protections and accept responsibility of the kind you're required. But...
0: Are we not heading for a total wild west with artificial intelligence? Absolutely. We're in it. We're not even heading for it. We're in it. I mean, if you put in your name in this, uh, you know, one of the, the uh, chatbots, AI chatbots, see what comes up. Uh, you know, you've no control. What what? The way I would describe them and the way it appears to me, uh, I mean, my my uh, two youngest the teenagers in the roller ice never I even talk uh, about IT, never mind AI, uh, because I think I'm so <laughs> out of touch. But, the, The problem you have is, I mean, I describe them basically as Wikipedia on speed with no filter. So what they do is they gather all this information out there. A human being will have empathy. A human being will have understanding. A human being will have an inquisitive, investigative mind. Any human being. These people, you think you're talking to a rational individual at the other end. You're not. You're talking to a machine that gathers all sorts of information, puts it all in, and you roll it round like a bit of a an like old-fashioned bingo hole rolls, see what comes out. And that's what we're getting now. I mean, there have been some horrendous stories uh, that people, I mean, a lot of the media, for instance, have been testing, whether it's ChatGPT or Bard or any of these things, and they're finding some quite extraordinary stuff that's coming out. And the big problem is, try to negotiate with a robot. Little bit more, a little bit more difficult than negotiating with a human being. And certainly my colleagues on the, the, the broadcasting side of things have been absolutely flabbergasted by the time it's taken to get the robot to change its, in inverted commas, mind. This is a future for us here now. We've got to, I've been trying to get people to understand that let's not let the AI chatbots get the same hold that the social media platforms have had. I mean, they got a free run for five or ten years. If we allow it to happen this time around, it is definitely going to be too late. And the consequences, in my opinion, could be absolutely devastating. And again, I say the same qualification. That's not to take away with the potential good that AI might do, but that's separate. That's completely separate. The traditional media do fantastic good, whether it's investigative journalism, whether it's highlighting social problems, cancers or whatever they do out there, that doesn't mean that they should be you know, immune from if they put out false or fabricated information that they shouldn't have to pay a price for it because that's what gives them credibility. These chatbots have no credibility. They've got to earn it. And I don't think there's any prospect with the law as it currently stands that they are going to be incentivised to do that.
1: Paul Tweed, it's been a fascinating time listening to you. Thank you so much indeed for joining us. Thanks, Sean. To hear more in this series, go to rte.ie forward slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.